Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You know, you don't tune into podcasts. Thanks for downloading the Meat Eater podcast. Uh, we're, we're recording right now out of, I always think of this whole area as Phoenix. But you guys got it all subdivided. Scottsdale. It's Phoenix. We're, it's Phoenix. But it's it's Phoenix but Scottsdale. Greater Phoenix. Yeah. yeah, we're in the greater Phoenix area, which is great, in Scottsdale. I'm here with uh, Giannis Pitellis, who's often with us. And before anything happens, I want to tell Giannis, plug your T-shirt company. We've done so many podcasts, you never plugged your T-shirt <laughs> company. Giannis has a T-shirt company. Yep. It's called Hunt to Eat. Go buy if everyone in this who listens to this goes and buys one of Yanni's T-shirts. Who's a constant presence on the Meteor Podcast? Yanni will be—he'll be rich. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe give us just like ten days. Oh no, when this airs, it's going to be. That's why I'm long doing it now. now. Perfect. Yanni's been having printing problems, but don't think that he doesn't put out the highest quality T-shirt possible. Hunteat.com. Hunteat.com with a two though numeral. No. Oh. The website is T-O. Okay. H-U-N-T-T-O. Hunt to eat. H-U-N-T-T-O-E-A-T. You go there. He's got different shirts. They say hunt to eat on them. You buy one. They're not expensive. They're cool looking shirts. Yanni gets a bunch of money. Um, you get an awesome shirt that says hunt to eat on it. You can get different states. You guys still have, well, you have Colorado. Pretty slim right now. It's Colorado, and then we have a generic hunt to eat. We've got a couple coming down the pipe, so hopefully we'll have them out before hunting season. I don't know why I'm out selling Yanni on his own t-shirt company, but he's just... Go there and get a hunt to eat t-shirt. I'm going to start talking about that all the time. The other thing you ought to do before we get too far into this is... Uh, Meat Eater Podcast is in many ways... It's like the, it's the offspring, in some way, of a show. There's a TV show, Meat Eater. I'm in it. It's on Sportsman Channel. 
And if you want to go just get it without having to monkey around with TV, you can go to meateater.vhx.tv and download and stream Meat Eaters until your heart's content. I don't know. We have, I don't know how many, there's, you know, how many, we've done 60 some episodes. Yeah, there's six full volumes. Six full volumes on there. And put in the offer code Meat Eater Podcast. You get five bucks off. Um, you get five bucks off any volume. So then you put your uh, Hunt Eat Yanni Patel's t shirt on, watch Meteor episodes. You're saving money, you're helping the planet. Um, we're joined by Dar Colburn and Jay Scott, two guides that I know who operate down here. And you guys, Colburn and Scott Outfitters. That's correct. Yeah. If you were going to go on a guided hunt, um, you, this is going to sound like hyperbole. And I'm telling you, like I have a vested interest in Yanni selling a bunch of t-shirts because I hang out with them all the time. I have a vested interest in you downloading Meat Eater episodes um, for, for various reasons. I have no vested interest in saying that if you were going to go on a hunt and you manage to get Jay and Scott to guide you, you're in the best possible shape because they don't do it for money. They just do it because they like it. Well, we do it for money. <laughs> but you guys, here's the thing: they do, they do. But once you hear about how these guys operate and sort of like what they do, you realize that it goes way beyond that. And um, give me what, what you guys consider yourselves the spokesman for Colburn and Scott Authors. We're gonna get into a lot of things that these guys are involved in. I'll do this before you get into it. You're, you're involved in, I would say, four primary pursuits. Gould's turkeys in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, just to give it a thing, like turkeys in the U.S., all turkeys in the U.S. are regarded as, from a genetic standpoint, are regarded as one species. Okay. It's like the, the American wild turkey. But wild turkeys are divided up into Rio's, Rio Grande turkeys, Miriam's turkeys, Gould's turkeys, um, Eastern turkeys, Osceola's. The Osceola's are in South Florida. And it's kind of the most, that's the most dubious subspecies because there's no genetic barrier between Eastern turkeys and Osceola's. It's just like a line. You just draw a line, like basically around Orlando or something. Mm-hmm. You just like draw a line across the state and we all just agree that, that it's Osceola's on one side of the line, Eastern's on the other side of the line. And there are some morphological differences. Like they have some, the, the, the blacker the, feathers. Yeah, different color tones to them. When you get into the Goulds, Rios, and Miriams, you did have real genetic barriers separating these different populations out. The hardest one to get by far is the Goulds, and the best place to go to get a Goulds is in Mexico. And within that, the best place to go do it is on with the places that the that, that Jay hunts. So they do Goulds turkeys in Mexico, Coos deer in Mexico, and coos deer are kind of the only real valid subspecies of whitetails. Then elk in a handful of select units yep. here in Arizona, the numbers of which are... Unit 9, Unit 10, and Unit 23. That's Jay Scott talking. Now, Jay, I'm just trying to do a quick wrap-up, so let me keep yapping for a minute. I don't mean to, like, you're the guest and I'm doing all the talking, but... I just want to lay the groundwork here. So you get this thing where you get these like 
these units, but it's not like giving up a secret because it takes forever to draw a unit. And when we get around to speak to that for a minute about what it requires to be able to hunt one of those units. The fourth thing these guys are involved in is hunting desert bighorns. That's correct. Mm -hmm. But only a little teeny bit, like only one or two clients every year, right? Yeah, well, there's very few tags for desert bighorn sheep in the state. I want to say there's probably only 75 tags. That's a rough number. And it's very hard, very challenging to get the tag. And, you know, a lot of those people don't go guided, but a few do. Yeah, there are less than, I counted it up and I can't remember what I counted. There are less than a thousand bighorn tags in the U.S. Sounds about right. Way most of these bighorn tags are given out is they're given out through a lottery drawing where interested parties, interested dudes, send their money in with an application and they do like a lottery. They pull names out of a hat and give those guys tags. But there's a couple other ways. There's, there's two other ways bighorn tags. There's two other primary ways. Like everything is just gets endlessly complicated. But there's two other primary ways of bighorn tags given out. You give out a bighorn tag through a raffle where you can buy as many tickets as you want for 5 or $10 a piece in whatever state you choose to participate in the raffle. And then that gives you multiple options. And then they draw a name out of that. And the odds on raffles can be dismal. Or they have a thing called a governor's tag or auction tag where to raise money for bighorn conservation. It's very expensive. Like bighorns are missing from a lot of their native range. It's very expensive to like get bighorns and get them where you want to get them and make the habitat right and protect them and have enforcement and research. And one of the ways they pay for all this is they sell a tag. Every state, most Western states, will every year sell a bighorn tag, and that's called the governor's tag or the auction tag. And you guys have done that. We have. We actually three years in a row we guided the raffle hunter here in Arizona. And the interesting thing in Arizona, the raffle tag, you can only hunt a Nelson Eye sheep. In Arizona, there's two types of bighorn. There's the Mexicana and there's the Nelson Eye. The Nelson Eye primarily are located... Those are both regarded as deserts. Both deserts. There's no distinction in like Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young or any of the record books. There's no distinction between the two. But the Nelson Eye primarily are in the north and west part of the state, kind of northwest by Kingman. It's basically the epicenter. And um, the raffle hunter can hunt Nelson eye sheep. There's one little section down in a unit 16A that there are some Mexicanas that, that move back and forth. But for three years, uh, Dar and I both uh, guided the raffle hunter. And um, How did you find the guy? Like, just, I just want to clarify real quick. When we say the raffle hunter, meaning the, the tag in Arizona that was given out to the guy that won like the door prize type raffle thing, but how many of those raffle tickets did they sell? I don't know exactly how many they sold. I know that last year, when the third year we did it, we harvested the largest ram ever shot, not only on the raffle tag, but the largest Nelson I ever shot in the state of Arizona. Because of that, the following year, when the raffle tag sales, I think it raised $160,000, $170,000. Oh, so it does almost as good as the governor's office. Well, and that was the thing. It, I think it brought thirty or 35000 more. And I don't want to say it's because we shot a big ram, but, I mean. People, too, got, you got people's attention. Yeah. So you got, so go back to that year. I guess we're going to talk about bighorns first because it just came up. Go back to that year, like how that went down, where a raffle guy, like how did you, how did the raffle guy come to hire you and what did he hire you to do? Well, the, the first year was um, Donnie Young from Mississippi and 
He had actually called around and talked to several outfitters and talked to both Dar and I and emailed us and we sent him photos and such and he kind of interviewed us and he chose us and uh, we actually went out on that first year and shot. He got the largest uh, ram uh, shot on, on the raffle tag and um, the second year we had um, Larry Spillers from Texas. He in- interviewed us the same thing, interviewed other outfitters and um, went out and he got a really nice ram. He had just shattered his ankle and I think it's his ankle and his foot and stuff. Didn't he have screws yeah, and pins, Dar? playing softball. And he actually made a great stock even though it killed him to get up there and shot a really nice ram. I think the third largest ever shot. Well then, the third year that we did the tag, uh, Claude Warren from Maine um, called us and hired us pretty much pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a raffle winner. He's a raffle winner, and he's from Saco, Maine, and just a great guy. And and um, he's the one that shot that really giant um, desert bighorn, the Nelson Eye. What do you when, when a guy like that? What are, like like what is the package you you bring to someone when he's won this thing? He's won this tag. It's a once in a lifetime tag. You're never going to be able to do something like that again. What do you guys do to go? Like guide that trip. Like talk about sort of the time you spend and how your schedule plays out over those months because that's the thing that's most interesting to me. Yeah, what's so cool about those tags is they start um, August 15th and go to August 14th of the following year. So it's a 365 uh, day tag. And what's a normal bighorn tag? Like there is no normal bighorn tag. 30 days here. Yeah. 30 days. So if you actually drew the tag. The month of December is the sheep season here in Arizona. But the raffle guy gets a year. He gets a year, and they usually find out in July, um, I want to say mid-July for the fall, for the upcoming year. So he knew a month ahead of time that his hunt actually started on August 15th. Well, the raffle uh, starts on August 15th. Well, obviously here in Arizona, you know, and over by Kingman and Lake Havasu and some of these places where the Nelson and I are, you know, it's 115, 118, 120 degrees out. So, what's that country look like? Oh, it's it's very beautiful country, but very rugged, um, jagged cliffs and and cactus. Some of it's pretty desolate. Country. Yeah, very desolate. I mean, a lot of times you go out there and you just you can't believe that a sheep even or an animal could live there. Um, but just rock and sand. Rock. Well. Not as much sand, but granite and rock, and I guess there is some sand, but yeah. you know, real steep, um, jagged peaks, and um, just beautiful country, but but inhospitable for sure. Mm-hmm. So you can't do it in August. That's the thing. I mean, you know, your hunt starts August fifteenth, but what we try and typically tell those raffle hunters is about October is not only a great time to go out and see a lot of sheep and the, the Nelson eyes typically are rutting really good from like oh, the whole month of October and the whole month of November they're still rutting really good and so all three of those hunts we generally hunted from like the 15th of October to like November 15th mm-hmm. that was kind of the window the 30-day window when we wanted to get our hunts done and that's the main thing is prior to the general season starting. So since they drew a year-long tag, that's great, but we also like to be able to hunt before the general season starts. So you know for a fact that you will not see another hunter? Well, you won't see another desert sheep hunter. At the- you might see some guy hunting deer or whatever. Deer, yeah. But um, we never saw really hardly, hardly anybody ever see anybody ever, which makes it awesome because 
you know, the sheep are rutting and there's a lot of them, the units we hunt, uh, a lot of the 15 units and, and such, there's just a lot of rams. I mean, it, we would see sometimes 100 sheep in a day and see, you know, what, 30, 40 rams yeah. in a day, maybe more. Um, and they're rutting, and there's nobody else out there, so it's just... But I should point out that during much of this, the hunter's not even out there. Well, the raffle hunt... Let me back up. Usually, Dar and I would go and scout for 10 days to two weeks prior to the season, and we would just go up there, and we would just scout until the hunter showed up, and then we would go and hunt from there. We so usually, you guys camp out and just look at rams? Yeah, just evaluate and look at rams, video, photograph. Absolutely. It's awesome. They're rutting around. It's a great time. So you just like have a camp set up, get up in the morning, go watch wildlife, yeah, watch we act- sheep, mm-hmm. yeah, go we to act- bed, wake up, watch sheep, and just keep a tally of what you saw. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do? For your family this spring, you can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field 
ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. So how many rams it, during that during that pre-hunt period, how many rams might you locate? I mean, it, I would say you could look at 50, 60, 70, 80 rams, um, depending on whether, you know, you're seeing 10, anywhere from, let's say a, you make a big hike and maybe you go into country and there's not many sheep, maybe you see seven or eight, and you could see 30. It just depends on really where you go. Um, and one thing we really try to do is photograph and video different rams so we have a basically a catalog video inventory of all the rams characteristics you know the flaring ones the ones that curl and tip up um so that when the hunter gets there he can go that's the one i want to go after what country was that one in and that that's the one we really like do you feel that you find all the rams Oh, absolutely no. not. No way. I mean, no. oh, so there's stuff you don't know oh, about, yeah. even after all that. And yeah. I mean, that that's half the fun of it is having where you don't know what's there and what's around the next, the next, you know, bend and what's up over the next hill. I mean, it, it, the country's way too rugged to feel like you could have inventory of every ram. Now there are certain units in Arizona where, after a certain amount of time, you can probably get a pretty good inventory of every ram that's in there. But, but these sheep move too, so you could, I mean, you could be there for a week and go back a week later and some different rams have, you know, moved into that area. Do you feel like there's bighorns in there that no one's, that there could feasibly be a bighorn in there that no one's ever looked at? I doubt it. I doubt it too, but I mean, you take like 15D where we actually um, harvested uh, two out of three of the rams. Well, I guess 15D south, mm-hmm. um, the unit got split, but... There's, you know, I think they've surveyed 500 and some sheep in the last survey. We were there actually three years in a row for their surveys, and I want to say they surveyed between, it's by a helicopter, anywhere between 450, and I think the last year we were there it was close to 500 and mm. something sheep. So, I mean, you're looking at a lot of country, and, you know, with the raffle tag, you can hunt anywhere, any of those units. Yep. So you could basically go from, you know, the Bill Williams River at the bottom end of 16A, and you could go all the way up through the Kayabab and literally cover hundreds of miles of, of country if you wanted to. Um, to back up a little bit, the first year we went out there and we actually set a camp, Dar and I, then we actually met a guy there in um, Golden Valley, Fred Ashurst, who's Dar and I's now dear friend, and he just basically has got this awesome property with this house and he's got this garage and concrete floors and he invited us hey just make base camp out of here so actually the last two years we did the raffle hunt we just stayed at fred's which made it great because he, he actually built a shower for us in a bathroom and um i mean i think the just first bring our cots out and yeah i mean we're there great. for you know anywhere from 21 to you know 30 days straight and um just looking at sheep it's it's great without no, without getting too like i don't want to get too per like i don't want to get too personal not personal, like in a, like your personal life, 
But how in the world do you bill for something like that? That's the thing. I mean, it, it, you if you break it down by per hour, what Dar and I charge, I mean, we're, you know, we're doing it because we love it. And yeah. we're doing it because really that's an opportunity to hunt and really look out there and find what's the unknown. Yeah. And, and basically it covers our expenses to yeah. be out there. Is that right? Yeah. But I remember, like, just to get a sense for how much these guys look around, um, I remember a conversation that I had with Jay. I think when we were hunting Gould's turkeys in Mexico, I had, I, I was talking about how I've seen, while out hunting, I've run into three mountain lions. And I remember asking Jay if he sees many mountain lions. And I think at the time, I think you said, right now I'm looking for number 32. Or something like that. <laughs> and now it's looking for number 38. We, <laughs> we saw two down in Mexico, Cooster hunting. I actually just saw the one. Um, Dar saw them both. But, um, yeah. If you were going to have a way to measure how much time someone spends, um, if, you, if you're like, going like, to try to like quantify, not just quantity, but quality of hours spent hunting in this kind of area, it would be like a good way to measure. Like, well, how many mountain lions have you seen? Because it's like, not only is it how much you're doing it, but how good you're doing it, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I will say that probably 80% of the lions that I've seen have been in Mexico, maybe 90%. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, I've, I've seen a bunch of them, most all of them with my binoculars. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're getting up on big perches and looking over tons of country and doing it, you know, days on end, looking for deer. Um, but you know, people think you know the lions would be hard to see. Most every lion I've seen, I mean, as soon as you see it, it's just boom, that's a lion. Is that right? And it's not like they're hiding. I mean, you just see them plain as day. That reminds me of something that, that the writer is a really good hunt writer. No one really knows about the guy, Duncan Gilchrist. Um, he's got a book, Hunt High. And by that, he doesn't mean hunt stone. He means hunt the high country. And uh, he, he's just—he's like this really like Duncan Gilchrist was sort of like an accidentally good writer. I think he accidentally almost wrote like Hemingway, like really sparse and kind of beautiful. But he was a timber cruiser by trade, but he was a big game guy too. And he, um, in one of his passages, he was saying like all the time you spend—he used to hunt bears a lot. All the time you spend being like, "Oh, is that a bear?" You know. But he's like, there's never been a time when I've seen a bear where I thought, oh, is that a bear? And it had to turn out to be a bear. It just is. And you know it, you know, like a stump don't turn into a bear. It's like, you're like, there's a bear. Yeah. And that's what it's like. I mean, I think Dar would agree with lions. I mean, you just see them and there they are. It's just like, that's what it is, man. There's no, you know, interesting about Duncan, he was really big into bighorns, filming them. You heard of this guy? Oh yeah. He died filming bighorns. That's all. A friend of mine. More like an acquaintance of mine, an outdoor writer named Daryl Gadbo, was writing a thing and was with Duncan when Duncan had a heart attack and died. And I remember Daryl had said, um, it was like he just left, like Duncan just left. And he'd looked at him and said, Duncan, where'd you go? And just like, was just gone. Yeah, on the mountain. Filming bighorns. Man. What a way to go, though. He was he was big into the, you guys. You guys, should, if you haven't looked at his stuff, you should look at it because he was huge into that stuff. But when you're so when you're out like surveying the ground for sheep, are you looking at stuff that a lot of guys would maybe miss? 
Is it like, is it hard to find sheep when you're up glassing for them? The country can be hard. I mean, it can be pretty physical. Um, but I think with sheep, one of the things Jay would probably agree, we don't spend all the time sitting in one spot looking. We cover a lot of country. We glass for a little bit. If we don't see something, we're on to the next spot. So, so not really like coos where you no, where on coos one perch for we half We still a day. move, but you wouldn't sit all day looking yeah. you know, at one hillside. We look. If we don't see them, we're off. So you feel like you can rule out areas? Definitely. Well, yeah. one of the biggest pieces of advice I give people all the time on sheep is, and, and I'm notorious, Darius, too, for having 10-power, you know, Swarovskis around our neck or whatever we're using, and you just pop up, you pan it real fast, and a lot of times you're going to see them right away, those white butts of the sheep that yeah. stick out. And I think from a coos deer mentality, you know, you hike up to a high spot and you sit there and you work it over in glass meticulously all day. As a sheep hunter, I'm kind of the opposite. I go up to a high point, I cover it all, I move over a bit, I cover this area, I turn around, so I basically cover 360 and maybe I'll do it twice. If I don't see them, boom, I'm going over, hiking over to another high point and do the same thing. But because sheep are nomadic and because they move around very, very much, more than any other animal we hunt, um, moving, because it's such big country, you have to move with your eyes and with your feet and, you know, Rule out country, move, cover the backside, cover the front side, go to a whole new area. Yeah, because just like unlimited amounts of stuff to look Rams at. Rams will be, you know, here one day and, you know, 15 miles away two days later. The, the, I always say the, the worst place to look for a big ram is the last place you saw. Oh, really? <laughs> Not saying they won't always cycle back to that area at some point in time. But they just they just move here and there. They have they're nomadic, and they're not like they're not like a deer. I would say where they're hiding from you, or laying down. They're they're just sheep. They're just up moving around. And like Jay said, if you see them, you see them. If you don't move, yeah, um, they're not hiding from you. you yeah, just no, I'm with can't you. see a deer when they when a deer sees you, a coos deer. They'll either hunker down or they'll take off running. Sheep are curious animals, and they do have that barrier like an antelope where. You know, you can get four or five hundred yards from them as long as you keep that distance. They're just going to let you, you know, yep. they feel comfortable with that range. Do you ever go out and find a bighorn? You're like, wow, that's a giant bighorn. Some guy would love to kill that bighorn. And then you never find him again? Oh, I mean, abs- absolutely. As nomadic as they are, yeah, I mean, they're very hard to keep track of. Depending on the country... Um, and their habitat, you know, eventually you'll find them again if you look for long enough. I mean, so you got a guy, just to get, get back to how this, how this whole thing plays out. You get like a guy, you got a client, he's going to come out and hunt. How many days is the guy going to come out and hunt compared to how many days you guys are going to be out there looking so when he gets there you know what to show him? It depends. Like on the raffle hunts or the general season hunts, you know, we put in usually a minimum of, you know, a couple weeks of scouting before they get there. On the raffle hunts, we always like, our, our thing is we like to be there like the 14 days before they got there so that we knew immediately what the sheep were doing. You know, scouting a month earlier, two months earlier, the sheep are going to be completely moved. So it's not like scouting, you know, a, a deer that's got a home range or an elk that has a home range. You know, like I said, if you spotted a big ram, you're probably better off to go to a completely different side of the mountain so we feel like right before the hunt is the most important time with sheep to be scouting. And then 
how many sheep might you find? Like, you know what the guy wants. Like, 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 you know, the, the way, like, at, at this level, when someone wants to go hunt bighorns, I'm talking to the audience, that's Jay. At this point, level, when someone's going to go hunt bighorns, they got like a, they get like a number in their head, you know, you're going to do this once, right? And they'll want a ram of, of certain size. So like, what's a giant, or, you know, what's the bottom end? Like, what would be like a big, you know, like a, a big desert bighorn that everyone would agree is a big bighorn. But sometimes it's a look thing too, right? It's not always just a number. Well, and it can vary unit by unit. I mean, some units don't have what we would say are big rams, and they just n- never have. And but the raffle guy is not going to go to that unit, though. No, but big in the raffle units, it's you can't compare big in a raffle unit versus some of the general units. Yeah, like years ago, like I think it was 2005, my brother drew a bighorn, a Rocky Mountain bighorn tag in Montana. Now, the biggest, you know, some of the biggest Rocky Mountain bighorns in the country come out of Unit 680 on the Missouri River, Montana. He didn't draw one there, he drew one far away. You're just, you're never going to get one of those rams where he drew a ram. So, like, when we showed it to the biologist down there, he's like, wow, that's a big ram. No way is that a big ram in Unit 680. Right. I mean, it's, it's the same like thing here with like the Nelson I. Typically, the Nelson I are not near as big as the Mexicanas. The Mexicanas are basically from that same line, Bill, Bill Williams River to the south. You've got Western Arizona by Quartzsite and and Yuma, and then um, you know some of the biggest rams in the world, desert desert sheep, are right here out of Phoenix in Unit 22 and 24, right along these lakes. There's uh, Saguaro Canyon and Apache Lake, and some of the biggest most giant Mexicana rams ever be taken or, or come right out of here just you know 45 minutes from our house here um, but you can't really compare a Nelson I with a Mexicana they're separately you know like what you were saying you would show what is a big Nelson I to someone that hunts Mexicana and they would it's they're just not as big the Mexicana rams um, are just a bigger ram bigger base just bigger score wise even bigger than the big ones you guys have gotten well, when Claude Warren shot his ram, it to give you an idea, it gross scored 185 and three eighths, which that's a giant even for Mexicanos. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the largest Nelson I ever shot in the state of Arizona. So, you know, that's a freak. It was a freak. Yeah, I guess. Normally, about 168, 170 inch Nelson I is a really big ram that you've really done something. Like Dar's Hunter this year, we had a hunter in the general season, um, and we hunted in the same unit where Claude shot his ram, and he actually got a really big ram, uh, the biggest Nelson I in the state of Arizona this year, and it was 175 and what, four eighths gross. And that was the biggest Nelson I shot, which last year was 185 and 38. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's a huge difference. Even our ram this year, um, Bob O'Connor's ram was a giant, but it was, you know, it's 10 inches smaller than Claude's to give you an idea. All right, everyone. I know you're enjoying the Meat Eater podcast and you're especially enjoying it because it's free. And to keep it that way, we got to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. This year, podcast is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the proper way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest dudes for just one quarter the cost of using a traditional advisor. 
So what it does is it monitors your account 24-7. It automatically rebalances your portfolio. It reinvests your dividends, and it works to maximize after-tax returns. Wealthfront is overseen by a team of investment experts, the same guys who launched the index fund revolution and who've written many of the most important books in finance. If you're still not convinced, understand that Wealthfront manages $2 billion in client assets and has saved literally millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. With Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, you're going to have a lot more time to do the kind of stuff that we talk about here on this podcast. Visit Wealthfront.com slash meet and you can get $10,000 managed for free. That's Wealthfront.com slash meet. Get your money managed for free. So if you guys didn't have a client coming out, would you go down and look at all those sheep still? I don't know if I'd drive four hours. I'd probably drive out here an hour and look at sheep. I got you. Versus go way over there. Yeah. And then you, so when the guy comes out, the client comes out, you present him with your findings. Yeah, we show him all the pictures and the video. And, and a lot of times um, we'll be emailing him and sending him little snippets of video the whole time when he's at home and we're off scouting. And what's his take on this? Oh, they love it. They yeah, love they it. eat it up. They love it, you know, and they, they start naming rams. And, and, I, and I think that's one of the reasons that we've booked that hunt so much and people like us because they talk to the hunters before and they're saying, I got emails every day of all the rams and they just love it, you know, the documentation. It, it drives them crazy, though, because they're back home and we're out there looking at sheep. But why are they back home? Well, they, they could be out there, but when we set aside, like, let's hunt. Oh, because he's not going to have a month. That he doesn't, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So who's got a month? We yeah, actually yeah. set aside two weeks for that hunt, and we say, look, if we don't find what you want um, in that time frame, then we can always come back out and keep hunting. Gotcha. Um, but it kills them when we're out scouting and sending them pictures <laughs> of rams and... and uh, they're at home so so you tell the hunter he, he still you tell him to come out for two weeks we usually plan two weeks on that hunt yes minimum i mean and by that point do you know like this is this is a two-pronged question at that point do you know the ram you're going to look for when the guy gets out there and in square miles how much how do you know where that ram is well what we try and do is see where the ram a lot of times we'll watch him and he'll be here and he'll be here and he'll be here and he'll be here and we kind of connect the dots that this is the this is the mountain range or this these are the certain peaks that we've seen the ram on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Claude's ram, you know, I, I found Claude's ram, Fred and I found Claude's ram together and I saw him that day and I saw him the next morning and then... I was scouting ahead of time, ahead of the, before I was even planning to come scout. You were scouting for your scouting trip. (laughs) Yeah, I was scouting for the scouting trip. We had him scheduled to come out November 1st to hunt from the 1st to the 15th. Well, I found this ram and I brought him back, showed a video of Dar and everything. And we started looking and it just started eating on us that we need to get up there. So I turned around and went up there. Well, I looked for 14 days and we couldn't find the ram. You're kidding me. So they're like... Well, they move around. Yeah, I mean, they're, like, they cover a lot of country. Did you ever find them again? That's the one we shot. Yeah. Oh, you, oh, that was the one. The day 
he got killed. 14 days later. So the hunter was there for 14 days on that one. No, the hunter no. showed up on, um, I think it was his sixth or seventh day. Because um, we actually bumped his days up. So you had seen it. You had seen the ram, saw it again. Videoed him. Then lost it for 14 days. Couldn't find him for 14 days. And how hard were you looking for it? It's hard. It's, it's darn hard. <laughs> and you guys do stuff. The hard. only way that these two look hard. for stuff. <laughs> Let the sun down as if we lost our wedding ring out on the side of the hill. I mean, I like just to give you a thing here. I hunted turkeys with these guys, and Jay likes to leave about 3 a.m. for if it's a very <laughs> short private property very, too. If it's a very short drive on private property, Jay likes to leave about 3 a.m. and get out in the woods. And we had a camera with us, as we want to do, and we had to put tape over a little red light that's the size of a pinhead on the camera. And then Jay gets in what best be described as sort of a lotus position against a tree and just sits there and doesn't even kind of move until daybreak. (laughs) I think a lot of times you could say what we do is a little extreme, but I think the reason that Dar and I have the success we have is we try and cover all the bases and we try and leave no stone unturned and we... You know, the little things like the light. I mean, I don't want to ruin the morning hunt for you because he sees, you know, the little light. Because it's the controllable stuff. No, I totally understand. Like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not like, hacking on you. I understand it respect it. And it's like, there's so many things you don't control, like where that ram's going to wander to. Why not have it be that everything you can control, you just address? So that it's only going to be the non-controllable. That's right. And you never have to be like, oh, I wish I hadn't. I mean, you can do that in your own way. Like, I should have gone in that drainage and not that drainage. Like, you can second guess. I'm always But it's not like, I wish I hadn't been a dumbass, Mm -hmm. you know, or I wish I hadn't taken, like, a shortcut, or I wish I hadn't decided to sleep in a little bit late, and then have it be that you know you're the cause of the problem, you know? Yeah, I think that's huge. I mean, from an outfitter standpoint, you know, there's always someone that will outwork you. There's always someone that's better than you. There's always someone that can spot better and do whatever. And so our job is to just try and do the absolute best job that we can and be the most efficient and most effective that we can and, and you know, let the results be what they, they may. But you, you've got to give it 100% on every hunt, period. But you guys have never gotten into... Um Anything that, like the buzz, not a buzzword, but the people are talking about, is it scalable? Is it scalable? You've never gotten into anything that's scalable. What do you mean? Like, okay, a guy becomes the elk guide, right? And then one day he says, you know what I should do is I'll build a lodge and I'll hire 10 guides and I'll have, you know, 40 guys come through this every year and kill elk and then we're making real money. But like you guys do like boutique, yeah. I mean, and that's a good word for it is boutique because we've talked about it a lot. If you want to make money and earn a living as an outfitter, it's a volume game. You yeah. got to do a lot of volume. But when you do a lot of volume, you lose control over, you know, the quality and who's guiding. I mean, it's not me or it's not Jay; it's somebody else, and it's hard to control that. And- so. 
and we Giannis is just out there. Yeah, willy well, nilly. Because <laughs> yeah, I should point out that Giannis Butelis, who you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be out buying his hunt to eat T-shirts right now. Giannis Butelis, who's a producer on um, media of the show, and who's always here on these podcasts, worked never on the Bighorn end of things, but worked the elk end of things with Jay and Dar Colburn and Scott. Now, I, w- I, wanna, I, I want to talk about some of the other stuff you guys do, but I want to finish up. Tell me about, tell me the story of where last year you guys did the, uh, like the governor's tag. And, and you, the audience, remember I was saying that there's like three basic ways that Bighorn tags get distributed, where you have the general lottery, where you pay an application fee and send in your application, one application, and you get picked or not. Then you have that. Um, raffle where you can buy an unlimited number of raffle tickets at five or ten bucks a piece and maybe it's you know a percent of a percent chances of being winning but you win the tag or you just like got deep pockets and you buy the governor's tag so after doing after killing these like giant rams with these auction guys the governor guy comes to you on the raffle you mean and then the governor oh sorry yeah after successfully three years very successfully doing three raffle guys you get sort of the you know the crown jewel of the the governor guy Mm -hmm. so tell me how that plays out you know i think one quick question too i want to just interject so you answer it while you talk here is i do want to know is it the crown jewel for you when you did get that call and um if it's all right to say how much that tag went for and so we know how much well even if he doesn't want to say it i'll just look it up on my phone yeah, okay. no, the, the, actually the tag this year, the, the, um, the tag went for 225,000. Um, the, the year last season when we guided the tag, it went for 180,000. Now, the beauty of that is all of that money goes to our sheep in our state. It stays here and, and goes into, you know, conservation and building water, water for the sheep and transplanting and helicopter surveys and yeah, it's earmarked. That money is earmarked specifically for sheep, yeah. which is great. Yeah, yeah, but it, it is, and I support. You know, I mean, it doesn't really matter what I think, but as far as the grand scheme of things goes, but like I support the thing, but the the paradox, and and everyone admits to this, is we have. Like our country, the reason our country has such phenomenal hunting opportunities and such phenomenal wildlife, despite the fact of a huge population and technological, you know, technologically advanced and all that, we have like wonderful wildlife, wonderful hunting, because we have what's called the North American model of wildlife conservation. And people often criticize that term, like it just makes people fall asleep hearing someone say North American model of wildlife conservation. But what it means is wildlife held in public trust. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl 
dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Hey, heads up all you anglers. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in Montana, based in Helena. After building custom fly rods for more than 25 years, Montana native and lifelong fly fisherman Scott Joyner decided to apply his knowledge in designing three performance-driven fly rod models. These rods were designed to be performance rods and to withstand the abuse that a fishing guide's equipment endures day in, day out. Their fly rods are named after Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks fishing access sites, which is such a cool idea. And each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Montana Casting Company fly rods have been developed to achieve the perfect balance of performance, durability, and legacy quality craftsmanship. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. The reason you do a lottery to get a bighorn tag is no one has any more right to the bighorns as anyone else, and you are democratically allocating bighorn tags. The governor's tag, when it's criticized, it's criticized on, on those grounds, meaning you're throwing out this idea of like democratic wildlife, of publicly owned wildlife, and making it a commodity that goes to the highest bidder. But you got to keep in mind, too, sort of how many tags we're talking about. Like You might have a state that issues several hundred bighorn tags. They do one for the governor's auction. And there's the issue of the fact that that money, and they can pull some out for administrative purposes, but I think it's like in the 90 percentage points of that money goes on the ground. Okay, So you could hit, and it happens every year in every state, people hit bighorns with cars, right? It's like one bighorn isn't necessarily 
It's not like one bighorn is of, of vital importance to the population of bighorns. We're not talking about Bigfoots here. We're talking about bighorns, right? Like, you can kill a bighorn that doesn't have any, especially an old male, has no real difference on how many sheep are going to be living in that state, okay? So it's not like you're, like, giving this the guy some finite resource that he's now going to remove and it's no more. You're killing a bighorn, one of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bighorns that live around here, and it's a bunch of money. But I'm, but I am sympathetic to the criticism of it. Like I understand where the criticism is coming from. And if you paid me to like advocate on that behalf, I could make a pretty impassioned argument against governor's tags. But I could make a better one in favor of them as it's currently run because this kind of stuff's expensive, man. They shot out bighorns off most of their range in the 1800s, shooting them for meat for whatever reason. And it's not like you don't just like wave a magic wand and get all those bighorns put back where you want them. It takes tons of time, tons of resources. So, anyways, you guys get this guy. He calls up. He bought the big. He got bought the governor's tag for two twenty. No, he paid one eighty. One eighty. This year's tag paid two twenty. Oh, okay. Two twenty five, I think. And, and how's that conversation go? You know, Darn and I have talked long and hard about wanting to have the governor's tag for desert bighorn sheep and you know it's it's an honor to be able to guide that tag and i always looked at it as you know because a lot of the scouting of some of the biggest rams in arizona are right here 45 minutes you know from our house and um, it was something that i've always wanted to do and I would say I had just an incredible time. We had an incredible time scouting. I think we each had 40 days individually into scouting. Is that right? And, um, you know, we, we saw some incredible country. We found some incredible, beautiful rams. And, you know, I, I think it was everything as a guide that I wanted to do. Um, it was just awesome to be out there basically photographing and videoing and filming these rams and nobody really was else around and um it was awesome we found you know if if you're familiar with the scoring system i mean we found seven rams that we thought were between 180 and 184 inches um our target ram score wise for the the hunter wanted 185 inch ram and you can tell you're you can tell me the difference between a 184 and a 185? No, but what I can tell you is um, there were no rams that we had found prior to the general season that were definitively over 185. I see. There was a seven of them, uh, two of which got killed. There were seven that we thought were between that 180 to 184-inch range. Now, the two that got killed, did they prove you right or wrong? Um, I think both the, the two that got killed, I think Dar and I were both under. We thought they were smaller. Oh, so you guys are conservative, not the other way. I always like to be, yeah. I, the, the, the worst thing that Dar and I could ever in our mind is be over on a score. It, the, the, the thing that would crush me most is if I overestimate, and it's happened before on animals over the last 20 years or whatever doing this, but it, it's one of those things that I never want to be over ever. That's, you know, that's part of credibility and that's part of, um, you know, Dar and I like to be credible and we like to make sure that if we tell somebody something that that's what it is. And you found, so you found seven rams that were in this 
area of 180 to 180 to 185 inches. 184. We didn't find any that were one, what we thought were 185. 180 to 184. Right. We found seven. Two of those got killed by other hunters. Two, yeah. On the general season. On the general season, because the general season starts December 1st, and it usually runs the whole month of December. So just like in the raffle situation, we wanted to hunt and be done before the general season. Okay. This is a little bit different, though, and our conversations before the general season with, with the hunter um, and his representative was, we have not found what you want. That we could say definitively yeah. we, and, and, is and, 185. You know, of the seven, we probably could have went out with them and killed any one of the seven pretty much any, at any time. Um, or put an effort in to find that ram and, okay, let's go get him. Um, and, he, you know, the hunter was like, well, what do you think? And we said, well, you've said from the beginning you want, you know, a 185 or better. You know, that in 2012, um, I, I helped the hunter that had killed the 186, you know, inch ram. And, and the, the raffle ram the year before, Claude's ram was 185 and three. And, you know, we felt like there was probably a ram out there that was bigger than 185. We didn't know of any, but we had all year to look for that ram. Did other guys know of one? It, I mean, it, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, we're not privy to some of the scores and stuff that, that other people, and, and we certainly don't ever want to say that we know every ram in the state at all. Well, and, and the other thing we talked about is there was only so many tags in that area where we were looking. They couldn't kill all those rams on the general hunt. Oh, of the, so even all the even if everyone killed one of the giants, it yeah, wouldn't be all. Yeah, the we still would have some rams that if we didn't find something else, we could potentially go hunt after the you know the yeah, general hunt. So after the over. general hunt, and we could hunt through the general hunt. You know, his tag was ever bit as good as any one of the general season tags. He could yeah. hunt in basically any of the units. But then he would have you know February, March, April, May, June, July, and half of August. Which the desert bighorn in this area, where the Mexicanas are, they typically rut in June and July and the first part of August. So, you know, we were going to be probably the first auction tag to ever hunt during the rut. And um, because it'd be, be the hot. first auction, it'd be the first auction guy that actually waited that long. That actually waited that long. So, from our perspective, why do they rut so different than the other ones? Like in the same state, you get some sheep that rut October, November, and you get sheep that are rutting late summer. You know, it's like why do the brown trout, you know, feed in this time in the rain? You know, it's just it's just yeah, the way it is. Gotcha. Um, so we knew that we had a great opportunity if if even if we didn't kill uh, before the general season, that you know we had tons of time to find a, a, you know a true giant, and if we didn't. You know, we we would have taken the chance and hunted the whole year and to try and find that monster of a lifetime. And if not, he we were pretty confident that you know he could shoot a you know a ram around 180 inches with you know two weeks to go, three weeks to go in the season. Yeah. So we're thinking we shouldn't settle now when we could yeah. settle at the end and have the same, the same result. result yeah. yeah. And I mean, the hunter will asked specifically is like what would you do and i said well if i had your tag and i wanted to kill a ram over 185 if we haven't found one that's over 185 let's keep looking we have all year did you ever start to worry that there wasn't one in existence in the state oh i mean i think it's not a worry but i think that's what motivates you to go out every day is to try and find it because but it's plausible that there's not sure oh absolutely 
It's absolutely plausible that there's not a over a, over a 185. But my thing is, with this tag, why not exhaust every possible resource? And if there's not, you don't find one, you gave it a great shot. And within, let's say, the last 30 days of the hunt, you could probably go out and still kill a tremendous ram. Yeah. And you could spend all that time in the field looking at Yeah, food. I mean, you, mm-hmm. the, the amazing photographs and video that Dar and I were able to capture was, is, is awesome. And we'll always have that. And we learned so much from it, too. I mean, there's parts of the unit that we learned now that, you know, that we didn't, hadn't gone in that now we know really well. And, um, you know, it, it's, nobody would do this unless they loved it. You know, you got to love it to want to be good at this and to do it. I mean, if you don't have a passion for it, you don't stand a chance. I mean, you can go out and shoot a ram, but you have to really... And there's a handful of guys that really love it. Yeah, no, there are. From a... from. This is something you're never, you're never going to be able to answer. Because you're honest, but you're tactful. At least enough to survive. How could it not be that, like... Just hearing this from me, I'm just curious how, what goes on in your head with it. How can you not think after a while that, that it'd be like, no, I killed that ram. Like, I'm the one that was out there. I covered all the ground. I went all the miles. I found the thing. I showed you where it is. And then one might say, one could argue, he just shows up and pulls the trigger. I, I mean, how does, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying, I'm not criticizing what he did. Like, he's doing his own thing and, and he's within the law. He's, he's, does right by you. Everybody's happy. But in your head, do you wind up, how do you, how do you wind up feeling glad for him and not kind of like, and not kind of like territorial about the thing? Are you talking the, specifically the, the auction tag? No, any, any hunter you have any, to do any, any, okay. Yeah, like, I think that, anyone who's not out there, like, if the guy said, no, I'm going to be right there with you, man. Like, if you stop fast, you're going to feel me bump into you because I'm in this. I want to do this. I want to learn what you guys know. But to have it be that you do all that, and then a guy comes out and, and shoots the thing, I'm not as, I'm, I must not be as big of a guy as you guys are, emotionally or, or psychologically, because I would wind up being like, you know what, I'm not going to show you where the sheep is. <laughs> because if you really wanted to know, you'd have been here. Well, I, I would feel that way about it. I certainly think, and Dar can speak for himself, but I certainly do like taking hunters that want to go scouting and want to be there for every experience. And let's face it, though, I mean, I can argue both sides of the auction tag. I can argue both sides very well. Um, our state relies on this money, and quite frankly, uh, the general Joe Blow, as much as I love them, they're not going to shell out of their pocket five bucks. They just, it's just... yeah. And, and we need the money. And so I'm absolutely 100% for auction tags. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I am too. And, and to get, get to your question, I think when we decide that we're going to be Colburn and Scott Outfitters and we're going to be guides and we're going to do this, I think you have to take a level of professionalism in the field that says, I've been hired to do a job and my job is to sweat. My job is to get, you know, struck by rattlesnakes. My job is to do whatever it takes, you know, have the boat break down. My, you know, change flat tires like we did out on the 60 and, and that's my job and nobody hears about that stuff. My job is to find, our job is to find the client the biggest ram possible and have them have the best hunt that they can possibly have. I think Part of our goal on our general season hunts is we want, yes, we want a great trophy, 
but more than anything, we want the great experience. We never want a hunter to leave thinking that they just came out, pulled the trigger, and they were done. Okay. All, most all the hunters that we ever hunt with, with all the different species, they, they text us, they email us, they call us, they invite us to their house. We're friends with them, and we build that bond and relationship. So I certainly don't want this whole conversation to be taken that it's all around tr- the trophy. To us, it's more about the experience. But... Yeah, I mean, is it feasible to think that you could go through all this work, you know, 110 degrees, and you're out there hiking up and down peaks and, you know, sleeping with the, you know, the, the, the fleas biting your ears all night and, you know, all that stuff that we do, but that's also the job we chose. And yeah. I think at some point that's your duty and you, you just do it. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I could see how I would feel about it is that it facilitates you being able to do something that people would only dream of doing. Yeah, that's right. I think the people, here's what it is. I think people think they, I think people think they wish they did what you guys did. They think, yeah, until they do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until they do it with us. But, yeah. Steve, what I was going to say too is most hunters, like Jay said, we've become lifelong friends with. And then you get the, the person, you know, our sheep hunter from this December. He shoots an unbelievable ram. He never once mentioned score prior to the hunt. And he gave me a hug as he was leaving with his family there and broke into tears and was just like, thank right? you for this unbelievable experience. It was, you know, more than I could have ever imagined. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty special. You know, it's more than money at that point and the size of a, a ram. Yeah. It's, it's a bonding, you know, life experience you've just shared with this person. No, I, mean, I think there are guys out, guides out there that I think all of us have run across that aren't nearly as professional as you two, and that probably out of the realm of you know the public eye, they do walk around boasting a little bit how probably and they take it into possession as in how much they've killed, talking about what their clients have killed. Well, sure. I agree with you, but I, and certainly I don't want to come across as someone that's saying that, darn, I don't have pride and don't have our own ego. We all want to kill the biggest I think stuff the we challenge can. Is, yeah, <laughs> I mean, we want to kill the biggest thing on the mountain um, because it's a once-in-a-lifetime deal, but I think we have to always check our own egos and, and, and you know, kind of humbly approach this because you know, we're not perfect by, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it's funny about what, what I was saying earlier about sort of like who did it, like whose possession it is. Talk like when you talk with guys, like I have a lot of friends that hunt a lot, and like I know, you know, we know guides, and you know, many of my friends have been guides. So when we talk about like when Giannis would tell me what you, he's always telling me what you guys are up to because he's in touch with you all the time, Giannis would never say, um, "Yeah, Jay and Dar's client did whatever." It would be Jay and Dar as like though somehow you guys are both like sharing. You each got your finger on the trigger. It's like Jay and Dar killed blank. You know what I mean? It's like it never like hearing it. No insult to your clients. Hearing it, it never even enters into my head that it's something other. I just like hear it and I'm like that they did this thing. You know, and granted, like for sure, you have like someone there and you're doing your job. But it's like in my from like when I hear it, that's just like honestly what I hear. I don't picture you guys like joint doing it, but I just picture sort of like But that's you guys the thing. Out we there, we get know? to go the whole experience and do it all. We just don't get to take it home. Yeah, I mean in the end, never we get to go on a sheep hunt every year, which is amazing. Do you guys go years without 
hunting personally? Oh, personally, yeah, yeah, a long, long time. Yeah, and I, I think speaking to that, you know, when Dar and I started, even before we started guiding a lot, I mean, we've always kind of guided, but um, Dar and I hunted together for all sorts of animals, and um, you know, I think one of the things that made- I mean, hunted like hunted. Yeah, like, yeah, like our own tags together. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that made us very effective is we always acted as a team. And there's numerous trophies that, that um, Dar shot um, that, you know, I'm as happy about him shooting that trophy as if I am. And people say, oh, that's not true. You, I, but. Dude, I, I can back and you up I on that 100%, man. Yeah. Like when I hunted, like the handful of times I've hunted doll sheep, it's always been with my brothers. And it's like it doesn't, you you don't talk about it. It's that we, you know, you always come off the mountain saying like, we got a ram. Yeah. And that's and the same thing really with guiding ask. though. That's they, the same thing ask. with- they go, like, What'd you guys get? It'd be like, oh, we got a ram. And that's the same thing with guiding though. Yeah. We've taken that yeah. same mentality into guiding and, you know, with- with the coos deer hunting and the mule deer and the elk and turkeys and whatever, we just, Dar and I operate, we, we know how each other, we know how we act, we know how when one person, you know, may get frustrated, we know how, we know how to read each other and we work almost as one. Um, and people that hunt with us, they say that, they're like, you guys are unbelievable because he knows what you're thinking, you know what he's thinking. And I think that's, we've become pretty effective that way. And I think we took that into the guiding and were able to produce, you know, very well because we work as one team. And, and, um, how'd you guys meet in the first place? Wasn't it like a fly fishing shop or something? Yeah. Fly shop. So it was, I think in 1995, I believe, uh, maybe 94. So 20 years ago, I actually had a doctor friend that owned a fly shop and, I remember walking in and there was this kid up on this ladder and he was stalking. Actually, we were moving the fly shop to a new fly shop and I came in and he, he'll tell you his impression. But um, <laughs> a little later that day, he was like, so you hunt? And I said, yeah. And he says, do you bow hunt? And I said, yeah. And I think ever since those words were uttered, we've been... Yeah, <laughs> lifelong friends. You've been Jay and Dar. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So. And then the, the owners of the fly shop left for the summer, so left he and I in charge, which Dar was, was scary. actually my <laughs> boss. Oh, there right. Yeah. Oh. I can actually remember one time on a Saturday morning getting a, I don't even know if we had cell phones back then, but to make a long story short, any, anyway, I called into Dar because I'm like an hour late, and he's like, where are you? I'm like, I'll be in. I think I had overslept <laughs> or something, but he was my boss. So, so after all that, how, 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 we do, how much time have we been Yeah, before you, Andy? We're at an hour right now. It'd be a good time to take just a quick break. Oh, announce it. We're going to take a quick break. Be right back. So after you guys met, like you guys meet at a fly shop, how did it go and you started bow hunting together? Yeah, we started hunting together. How did it go from that to be like your guide in desert bighorn hunts? Well, in, it was 2001. Hold on, but at this point, neither of you have guided hunting. No, I had a guide's license. I think in I think nineteen ninety seven was the first year that I had a guide's license. So after you guys met, correct? After yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. Jay started guiding some hunts um, late nineties for what elk. 
right? Elk and coos deer um, down in Mexico kind of started that. And was that just because you'd been hunting on your own and liked it and had a knack for it? Yeah, I think, to be honest with you, I was just trying to get more time out there hunting. Um, in Arizona, you know, with our draw, it's, you know, limited tags and living here and not having, you know, a lot of resources early on to to go hunt, I thought being a guide was perfect because I could go tag along and, and, you know, actually go experience all these hunts because Dar was actually raised in a hunting family since he was little. I, I shot my first year when I was 15, but that was the first real hunt that I had ever been on. So I was one of those kids that grew up. My grandma got me Field and Stream and Outdoor Life magazine, but I absolutely wanted to hunt as a little kid worse than anything. Is that right? But it's I funny because usually those people don't turn into real good hunters. And, and It's usually the people that have, you have to do it your whole life, you know? Yeah, and I mean, some would argue whether I'm a good hunter or not. I guess the, the thing is, is I wanted to hunt and fish so bad as a little kid. I think even today people ask me why I love it so much is because when I was little, I really didn't have the opportunity. I was the kid that literally when Field and Stream came, you know, like six, seven, eight years old, would read it cover to cover and literally have like the, the pages flipped to the things that I liked. And, you know, so once I got introduced to it, um, I was hooked. That's all I wanted to do is hunt and fish. Yeah, you know, Jay brings up an interesting point where like how if you want to hunt in Arizona, you, you oftentimes just have to go with someone who's got a tag. And if you notice when you see pictures from Arizona, there's always seven, eight guys in the picture. Yeah. Because you got your guys you hang out with, and you're hoping that one of the guys draws a tag. Yeah, that's right. If you, you know, want to go like, every year, you got to go with your buddies. Yeah, like if you live in Montana, it's like, if you're a Montana resident, absolutely antelope tag every year, absolutely elk tag every year, absolutely a buck mule deer or whitetail tag every year, as many doe tags as you want to get, absolutely a bear tag every year. You can hunt more months than you can't hunt. Yeah. Here, I mean, it's just a different place. It's just like it's just not as productive of a landscape. It is, it, you just can't, you know. There's there's not over the counter hunting here so much. Yeah, I mean, know? I think we do have lots of opportunity here if you're, you know, we'll do archery and just do different things. There is a lot of opportunity. Yeah, here. but you're not walking around because your wallet's fat with all the tags. No, no, you gotta, like, you're figure out not. somewhere to put definitely all your tags. Not. You know? No. <laughs> So yeah, you fall in with someone, and and you know I mentioned that like in in this this the hunting guide book we have coming out. I mentioned there's a lot of things that if you want to go hunt them, like I say, like if you want to go on a on a bighorn hunt, hang, start hanging out with guys that are interested in bighorns because the chances of you ever actually drawing a tag, you know, it's not going to happen. No, but if you fall in with the right crowd, you might go on a handful of them. I've been on a couple of bighorn hunts. I've never drawn a bighorn tag, but I've had I at least had the experience of going. It's they're incredible wow, animals. It's, it's a blast, man. And, you know, I, I still sit here feeling like I got to remind myself that I didn't shoot the thing. You know what I mean? Because it just felt like like being there. That's exactly how I ended up here working with you is because I found out you had a doll sheep tag. Yeah. And I volunteered my time just so I could fly an airplane into doll sheep country, join you and... I think Dan. I hooked you two up by email, I think. Yeah, you were like, yeah, Steve's got a tag. You should talk to him. Yeah, you were, moving, you were moving to Alaska. He was in, I was in I was in Fairbanks, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so just by going, you know, by wanting to go and see sheep country and see a sheep hunt and, and, and experience a sheep hunt, here we are. Yeah. I'd been, 
Yeah, I had a tag for something called the Tote Management Area. Now, you guys have never hunted doll sheep, right? No. Want to. You do want to? Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember one of you was complaining about that you're a little bit afraid of cold weather. No. <laughs> no. It was, I think it was wet. We're in Arizona. It was wet. I would say that anytime the weather gets under 60 degrees, I grab for a sweater. So, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a desert rat, but um, yeah, I would love to go doll sheep hunting, stone sheep hunting. Oh, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So, definitely uh, not saying I'm the toughest critter out there. Well, no, you got to be, though, now from doing all that sheep scouting. Um, all right. So, you guys work in this fly shop. You'd like to hunt. Or you like to hunt a lot and just got into guiding and started out doing elk mm-hmm. and coos deer down in Mexico. I love video. I, I, I want to say that last year um, was my 20th year, would have been my 20th year of taking the entire month of September off to video elk. And it started out videoing elk and guiding elk hunters and just my, my love for elk and bugling and all of the parts of the game of elk hunting from calling to you know, all of the different facets of elk hunting, I was just enamored with it. Yeah, Jay even judges uh, elk calling contests. Three years, I was a judge for the Rocky Mountain elk calling contest, but I didn't judge this last year, actually, because it was during sheep season. They they, <laughs> they bumped their um, expo up into December, which was right at the beginning of the general uh, desert bighorn sheep season, so... So doing doing the elk deal, how did that lead into like how to like kind of like give like a quick crash course and how dude becomes a sheep guide? Um, to be real honest with you, we hunted all sorts of stuff. In two thousand nine, my friend Glenn Hall, Darnay's mutual friend Glenn Hall, who we just think the world of, actually drew a desert bighorn sheep hunt. I had never been on a sheep hunt until then, and so he drew the tag, and his son Tyler and I. Uh, basically we wanted to know everything there was to know about sheep hunting. So I talked to every single person that would listen to me that would take a phone call. Um, Tyler and I both scouted a lot for Glenn's hunt. And from the first time... Just as friend, you're just doing this as a friend. He's my friend and I wanted to be there for the whole thing. I took the whole time off and, you know, that was... (laughs) I wanted to. That's a good guy to know. I hope I draw an Arizona sheep tag. <laughs> and so I was. Watch, you won't even take my call when I yeah, have. Just get the tag. Get the tag first. Yeah. Um, so from the first round that I ever saw, and I was just hooked, the yellow horn, just the country they live in, I was just hooked on it. And so, I mean, we became almost obsessive about So did you guys have a good hunt that year, the 2009? Glenn shot what at the time was the number three um, muzzleloader ram uh, in the Long Hunter book, 176 and 4 eighths net, which um, was a large ram for that unit. And um, we looked at a ton of rams. But, I mean, at from that point, from that season, um, just absolutely hooked on sheep hunting. And that was over in western Arizona. And we had already been guiding, you know, for coos, deer, and elk and all the other stuff. And um, we learned so much about that unit. Um, How many days did you put in when, when your friend drew the tag? Oh, I mean, I would say we put in 21 days at least. Just um, go. Maybe, maybe more. Um, but videoing and photographing them and just documenting them, I just fell in love with it. And as fortune would have it the next year actually um a guy from wisconsin ron orndorfer drew the same unit oh okay. well when he called me he had found out that that um 
we, we, I was in there the year before, he had the same hunt, and I said, look, you know, I might not have the experience on judging rams and what have you, but I know the unit and I know some of the rams that are in there and we got a great one last year and, and I think Darnay's expertise in glassing for coos deer just, I mean, when you're trained to hunt coos deer and, 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 and glass for coos deer, sheep is, in desert sheep is nothing compared to coos deer. So I felt like we fell right into the sheep game. Um, we took Ron out, actually guided Ron in 2010. He put his faith and trust in Dar and I. We did it together, and he got a beautiful ram that, that we had nicknamed the Logo Ram that we had actually found the year before. And um, we spent, I think we scouted, um, it was either every Wednesday or every Tuesday for like two and a half months, mm-hmm. um, steady every morning. That day we would drive two hours from here. But then before the hunt, we spent a bunch of time, and, and um, Ron killed the logo ram, and that was 2010. And then um, I just was in love with it even more, and Dar then was all in, you know, and he was loving it too. And 2011, Eric Swanson's ram, he got a nice one. And then, you know, then 2011, we took our first raffle. So we kind of went from zero to 100 real quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think darn eyes analytical nature and and it seems like everything that we get into i just want to know everything there is to know about it and be competent at it i so i think the way we went from being elk guides and coos deer guides to being sheep guides was just loving the game and wanting to to be in the game and know everything you know you could about the sport do you guys think you'll keep doing going after sheep definitely well, it's no, fun. I mean, there, one thing about sheep that I would say is different than deer and elk, there's a lot of interaction with them. Um, when we're taking pictures and video, a lot of times it's close. I mean, you can be 50, 100 yards from them sometimes. Is that right? Yeah. We've so gotten it's, some phenomenal video. Yeah, the pictures and video, it, it it's really enjoyable documenting all that stuff. So that aspect of it is different than elk and deer. Do you guys put in for tags? Oh, yeah. How many bonus points do you have now? I have 20. I think I have like 18. Do they give any tags? Um, just just to, to, I feel like we, we've talked about this so many times, just to like bring people up to speed on what I'm talking about when I talk about a bonus point is in, when it comes to limited draw permit allocation, which happens when, let's say you have, you know, 100 deer and 500 dudes want to hunt deer you gotta like be like fair about it, and not everybody gets to go, and so everybody starts applying. And they reward loyal customers. Thinking of a person who applies for a tag as as a customer, they reward loyal customers by every year that they apply without success, they are given a bonus point or a preference point. And basically, these are like rewards points, which enhance your chances in the subsequent years. To draw a tag. Some states handle bonus points in different ways, where some states, and this is true for everything from bears to bighorns, right? But even turkeys, there's bonus points for turkeys in some states. So some states will give a certain number of the tags to whoever has the maximum number of points in that given year. Some states just treat a point as a point, and your name goes in once for each point you have. So if you have four bonus points, your name goes into the hat four times. Montana, Squares your bonus points. 
So I have right now 12 Bighorn Sheep bonus points in Montana, or 13. My name will be going into the hat 169 times this year. I will not draw a Bighorn tag this year. Um, and, and until that state does the thing where you give a certain number of tags at a max point holder, I'll probably never draw. But you have a chance. Always a chance. I'm, yeah, I have a chance up into almost a percent. I think. I have about a 1% chance um, with 13 bonus points. So anyways, you have 18 and 20 bonus points. Are you in a situation where they're going to for sure give you a tag when you get a max? Or don't, don't they, they don't do that max holder thing. We're so far behind, I think. I think 25 is max. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong. It might be 26, but 25, I think, is max. And are there more max guys every year than there are permits available to meet all the max guys? There are right Are now. the max guys still in a drawing? They're not just automatically given. I think rough numbers, I was going to say there was like 150 people with max for sheep, and they give 20%, well, 150 residents, I believe, yeah. with max for sheep. And let's say they give 100 sheep tags in Arizona, 20% go to the people with the most bonus points. So 20 tags right off the top go to those max point holders. Yeah. So, I mean, Jay and I are behind that, so far behind that. Well, I think I don't know that the we'll thing you need up. to look at when you don't have max points in Arizona is you need to apply for units that don't go in the max point draw. So, so you need to pick some of the lesser tier units that might not have as big a rams, but might have a sleeper ram, and that's what I always try and <laughs> I always try and apply for units that there's still a chance if I draw of getting a really nice ram, but that aren't gonna the tags aren't gonna go in the max point pool. Yeah. Because the the way Arizona does it is, they give twenty percent of the tags to the people with the most points, but they don't give twenty percent of each hunt. They just let those twenty percent. They pick those tags out of the pool. So those people with the max points are picking the best units. Yeah. So the best units aren't available by the time it comes to the general draw because they only might have one or two tags. Yeah. And they're gone in that 20%. So if you're applying for those units, you, you're wasting your – you will not draw. But a, a good story, last year I took a girl on the general season, Avery Elms, cutest little thing you've ever seen, 12 years old from Oregon, Baker City, Oregon. She brought her dad and grandpa down. Um, she started hunting on the 19th once she got out of school, but she only had two bonus points. And it happened to be in the they same. They drew a big one tag. And as a non-resident. As a non-resident, but she drew in that unit where, in, where I hunted in 2009 and 2010, where the, the Glenn Hall's big ram was and the, um, uh, the the logo ram. And subsequently, the one of the seven giants that... You know, I shouldn't say giants, but one of the seven big rams that we found uh, scouting for the auction tag was in that unit, and it actually got killed, and I think it was 183 inches, um, and she drew with two bonus points. So don't ever think that as a non-resident you can't draw because she drew with two points, yeah. and, and she got a beautiful ram and um, was a pleasure to hunt with. So you'll do more. You'll do more than one sheep hunt. You did. You were involved in several sheep hunts. This well, year. Dar, Dar had a client in uh, 15D North, and and I had Avery Elms in 44B North, and oh, then okay. we also had the the auction hunter. Um, so technically, I guess we had three hunts. So you guys are split up now, then? Yeah. Rarely, but <laughs> but we do. So Jane Dar didn't kill it. 
<laughs> <Dark Hill. laughs> That's right. No, I, I found the big one and I called Jay because his hunter wasn't coming. Oh, really? I didn't. He said, "My bags are packed. I'm headed your All way." All I had to do was just say, "I found a big one," and I was scrambling for my stuff to to get up there to just help him out any way I yeah. could. So now. I meant to talk about it, but I wanted to talk about all the things you guys guide, but we burned up tons of time on bighorns. But to put in term of points, the elk units you apply, the, the elk units you hunt in, are arguably the best elk units in the country. Because Arizona is widely regarded as, you know, it makes like the... If you're gonna, if you ask anybody who's really into elk to name like the top two or three elk states, Arizona's always on the list. And they're the best units in the best state. How many years have the guys you guided been applying for the tags that you guide? It's a great question. You know, our draw just came out. Uh, the actual draw hasn't been released, but they've hit the credit card. So the guys that have applied on a credit card. Uh, they know they've got a ding on their card, so they know that it hit for whatever the amount is, the non-resident fee. What day did that come out? Uh, like Friday. F- four or five days ago, yeah. or three days ago. Um, so I have a guy, Bob Reed from Bend, Oregon, uh, 68 years old. He has 17 bonus points he put in for Unit 9 Archery. So he's been faithfully applying for an Arizona elk tag for 17 years. Yeah, and going... It in, apparently hasn't come out because he wouldn't have his bonus points if he'd come out. Right, and and going into the draw, you can look at the numbers and see how it went last year. And we were pretty confident that with 17 points, he was going to get the Unit 9 Archery tag. So he applied for Unit 9, one choice, and he did get a ding on his credit card. So we know we're going elk hunting. Is that right? 17 points. 17 points. When you're in those units, like how good is good? Like how many bulls? You like to call. Yeah. Like you call a lot. But Dar, you don't like to call too much. Not, not very much, no. You more just like to get out in front of elk and just yeah. see if something happens. Yeah. So when you're calling, like in one of these primo units, if you're, like how many bulls might you see? You know, when they're really rutting and really going, you know, you can get out of the truck and make a little walk. And, you know, when it's really hot, you can hear 12 or 15 bulls bugling when it's really good. Um, You know, and in a given day, whether you're just trying to glass them or if you're actually trying to work those bulls and get in on them, I mean, I would say on a good day, you could see in a morning, I mean, you could probably see a dozen bulls easy. Um, if you were just glassing, just trying to spot elk and not really move in on them, when it's good, you could see, I mean, you could see probably 15 or 20 bulls, no problem. Would you agree, Dar? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's that, what's that, uh, on that, what's that YouTube video? How would people find that YouTube video that bull comes up and screams in your face and you try to scare it off? Oh, yeah, it's, um, uh, Crazy Eye. Yeah, it's, uh, Encounter with Crazy Eye. I was in Unit 23 with, Chad Converse and Richard Sprague in 2010 and this bull was bugling and I kind of we snuck up and they got out in front of me and I cow called and you could tell he was just coming and then he kind of comes and then he kind of turns and looks in their direction and I kind of called to him and he just came like on a string and he ends up coming around trying to catch my wind and he circles me around over here so you'll see I kind of turn the camera and he comes and I'm just sitting like, you know, kind of on my knees and he comes up, bugles into the camera and I thought that's cool and then he takes like five or six more steps and he's literally as close 
or maybe closer. I can't believe you didn't try to spook him before that. You know, I've been very, very close to elk um, before, and uh, it's just one of those things. I'd be worried that he's going to all of a sudden just get scared, and all it would take is him just to... We always we always laughed at, you know, whatever you do, keep the camera running if that happens. Um, it's probably not the smartest thing. I, I don't condone no, I people it doing is. it, but I love... Yeah, I mean, like, all the safety stuff. I, mean, I love doing it. Yeah. I love being close to him, and, and, you know, sometimes literally you can... If you play your cards right, you can literally probably reach out and touch them as they walk by. But you gotta tell me your heart had been racing though. Oh yeah, I was. It was. I was on full alert. I'm thinking he's got me if he wants me for sure. Oh, that's Jay, great, Jay that's in the video. video. Jay's face is pale. When, when you turn the camera back on you, <laughs> I just your had face my little pale. my little camcorder thing, and yeah. But you're talking about the same video I'm talking about, where you wind up saying like, "You shoot, shoot." Whoa, whoa, yeah. bull, whoa, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whoa, bull, yeah. And he kind of like, he hesitates and he looks at me, and I'm going, "Whoa, bull, whoa." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he never really spooks. No, he doesn't. No. It's on YouTube. You can it's on our YouTube. Yeah, he doesn't spook. No. He's so And like I know that in that you like if you're gonna go there, you've been putting in for seventeen years, all that, like you're gonna go and you're gonna try to kill a giant. You know, why not? I would. Yeah. Um but that bull's like 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 a normal like a public land hunter in Colorado, oh, dude. It's getting shot. Yeah. Well, It'd be a dream. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the thing. The beauty of Arizona is, you know, it's such good hunting, and a lot of guys have waited for so long. You hate for it to be over with quick. Yeah. We, you know, we book fourteen day hunts. We do the whole archery hunt. You know, one on one. That's that's you know, I'm taking this guy in unit nine. He's my only hunter, and I'm as committed to the hunt as he is. And um, we don't, you know, we don't split the hunt up. We feel like. You know, we want the hunter to be as committed as we are to the hunt. So you guys' clients will sometimes have, you are here, like when you're looking at guided hunts, it's always like two to one, meaning like two clients, no. one guy. But you guys sometimes do the other way around. Yeah. Well, most, we guys have, yeah. one most of the time uh, for elk, Dar and I each have a client. You, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain times when we maybe not, we might each have an archery client, but we don't have a muzzleloader or an early rifle. And most every situation like that, if I don't have a client, I stay and help Dar with his client. If he doesn't have a client, he stays and helps me. Yeah, or or if we shoot one bull on the archery hunt, then the other guy's got two guys helping him. Yeah. yeah. And it always seems like there's somebody else from your community yeah. that's yeah. like up hanging yeah, out and is like glassing. And- mm-hmm. So if you don't like the call, what do you like? How, how do you do it? Like, what's your elk philosophy? I just like to get in front of them. And- it's not that I don't call because I do. Jay's got me calling some, but um, my use mouth call. I'm not way. as good a caller as Jay. If I if I was, I certainly would call more, but I'm not, so I have to use, you know, stalking to to get in on them. Um, I just like my theory is that if I can get in front of them and they don't know I'm there. You know, I'm not calling to them, so they're not looking at me. In front of a meaning when they're traveling to what? Yeah, when they're traveling or when they're out feeding. You know, I'm, I'm trying to stay parallel to them and then just keep getting closer, hooking in front of them, and they're going to pass by, like on an archery hunt. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges with um, what Dar's talking about is the elk, no matter what, are always walking into the wind. So. When Dar says get in front of them, he never actually gets in front of them because their yeah, wind true. will you, hit them. Yeah, you're, so, you're he's parallel, parallel, parallelling them, but and then at the last second, closer, you hooking close in. in. Yeah, 
And so that's the trick that, I mean, definitely yeah. hunting in the southwest, a lot of times we'll chase out and line after these bulls and line out after these bulls, and we'll go for a mile, a mile and a half before we even just decide to hook in. I mean, we'll be patient, be patient, be patient, and then hook in. And you might hook in, and you might be 30 seconds late or 20 yards late where they're Or just all cows, right? So, yeah, and then you got to loop around and do it again. And the challenge, too, is, um, you know, usually the cows are in the lead and the bull's always in the back, and the cows are so wary and such you've got to hook in enough that the cows don't wind you, but get in close enough where you have a shot at that bull when he comes by. So, I mean, it's truly, Dar's phenomenal at it, um, but it's truly something you kind of have to learn how to do. And, you know, if you get in front of them and you wind them, you've now spooked them and they Mm -hmm. take off, and now you've got to find a new group of elk to chase. But you also got to, if you don't push the envelope, you'll never get a crack in them. It's a fine line, because if you you stay too far back and behind them, you'll just never catch up. You know, I, in my own years, like, like I bow hunted for elk heavily for almost a decade. Um, where you kind of like, my brother and I, like, had a place we hunted. We knew it well. He still hunts. He does much better now than I, he did when he was with me. Um, but we would all, we talked about that line all the time with elk. Where on one hand, you can just sit and plot, you know? Like at five o'clock, you know, like the sun gets there, they always come over. It takes about blank time, and then the whole herd's over. Then you can kind of come in behind them and get on the ridge, and you know, and you watch that whole thing for a day. And then, like, you go to make a move the next day, but the wind's not right, you know, but you're only hunting a three day weekend. And you're always sort of like, at some point, you just got to get in there and risk yeah. doing it. And then you get in there and spook them, and you're like, man, I should have waited. Yeah. You know, it just seems like such a situation, you know, like you, like you just run that it, It's a fine line. Definitely is a fine line. And every now and then you get lucky where you've been parallel for so long, and instead of you hooking, yeah. you, get del- hook you, de- or, yeah. Yeah, you get dealt that nice wild card, and all of a sudden they just decide to hook in front of yeah. you. And or another bull bugles, and they're the bull, you know, the cows keep going, and the bull stops and rakes a tree, and boom, you're right there. Yeah. So... I was watching uh I was watching an episode of of the show Western Hunter and um it was that show has different hosts but it was uh Matt Simmons was on there Nate Simmons Nate Simmons yes yeah, yeah and um sorry and he was like he kind of like summed up his elk hunting strategy in like such simple terms but having done some elk hunting it makes total sense he basically said like I like to get close and wait for something to happen yeah, and that's which sounds kind of like yeah. flip it, but then you're kind of like, I know exactly what you're talking about, dude. You kind of get in there, and it's like it's dynamic, like things are changing, you know. And now and then, like I remember one time, it didn't work out, but I remember one time like doing that, and all of a sudden realized that the bull I'd been sneaking up on just got totally engrossed in thrashing a tree, you know. And I could have driven a quad runner up on him yeah. at that point, you know, because just like something happened, like. He's super wary, bedded down. There's no way you're going to get anywhere near him. And all of a sudden, he stands out and you're like, that dude is just oblivious because he's shredding that tree. And then, you know, there it is. Like, something happened, you know? Yeah, you got to just shadow him and hope they make a mistake. I mean, that's what you're doing. Well, and I think our terrain, too, is a lot different than other states. Um, You know, we can travel with the elk a lot better Mm -hmm. down here. We're not running through the, you know, 
broken down blue spruce, you know, um, blow downs and stuff, you know. Yeah, got, you guys got that nice, you guys often hunt in that nice bed of pine needles, too. Yeah, and, and, and it's flat. And I mean, fairly flat, not Colorado, Montana. And so we can really run with these elk, and it's just a lot of fun. If you haven't experienced Arizona, you know, it's uh, something that you got to apply for. And, and, you know, there are units that you can draw with five or six, seven points as a non-resident that you can have bugling bulls. And maybe they're not the giant, you know, 350, 360 plus type bulls, but a lot of, you know, 300 to 320 bulls, which most people are just tickled pink with. And there's oh, yeah, a yeah. chance at a 350 bull in every unit in the state. Yeah. So it's always a chance. I have some number of points. But I'm still kind of just saving them up, you know. How many points do you have? For, I could tell you by looking it up. I can't. I mean, it's four or five. Four or five. Yeah. I think. So I'll be calling you guys in 20 years. I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Where we were? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm gonna. Have, we're gonna. Have, you guys are gonna have. We're gonna have to sit down again because we didn't get to talk about. <laughs> the things I'm actually most interested in is hunting Gould's turkeys and hunting coos deer. So I guess this is think of this, Jay and Dar. Tell, tell everybody your website. Uh, jscottoutdoors.com, Colburn and Scott Outfitters.com. Is that the same website? No, two websites. Oh, di- they're different? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought they were just like the same, just two ways of getting the so same. So our, our guiding, our guiding uh, website is the Colburn and Scott Outfitters.com and then um, all of our other adventures, fishing, all the hunting, all the gear stuff, what have you, is chasecottoutdoors.com. And then you can go on and look up uh, Encounter with Old One-Eye. Crazy Eye. Crazy Eye, Crazy <laughs> <I>, yeah. <laughs> so check that out. It's good stuff. All right, guys, we're going to have to do it again and talk about more stuff. But uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, best of luck. Make sure to get in here. It's too late now, but uh, the 2000, what? 16 applications. Well, deer and, deer and sheep is coming up in June, so get your deer and sheep applications in. Get your deer and sheep applications in, and in 20 years, you might be on the phone with Jay and Scott. <laughs> Talk to you later. Jane Dart. Jane Dart. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there out of my way and secure it's perfect if you own a pickup truck that you use you know like a truck the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear you can lock it up too you keep your tools and gear organized job site or out in the field go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping go to decked.com slash meat eater get yourself some free shipping